Good morning to everyone. Happy Sunday and welcome to Sacred Heart. It's good that we're here. Um, a general request to all of you. I was uh, in the school recently and then I, I had this experience and then I compared it with another priest and so we agreed that we're going to encourage everyone. If you don't know the Ten Commandments, please learn them or refresh your memory. Usually when we ask the kids in the school, can you name the Ten Commandments? The first question that follows is in order. Thank you. Yes, we have two catechists that are up here, at least one catechist. In order? Imagine asking your spouse that. When is our anniversary? Do I have to know the numbers of the date in order? Yeah, if you don't have them in order, then you don't have them because God gave them in an order. So please, that's a homework assignment. Ten Commandments in order. Also, Cliff Notes version of the homily, go to confession. There we go. <laughs> Full version. Um, when I was in seminary, uh, I went to seminary in uh, Columbus, Ohio for six years. And part of our formation uh, every year, actually, uh, every year that we were in theology, so the last four years of the six years, was doing a little bit of time in post-abortion healing ministry. And I had never had any exposure to this before I went to seminary. And actually encountering women and men who had been through the trauma of an abortion made me incredibly apprehensive and nervous to have to, to, to sit through this training. And so um, it took place in um, uh, kind of like the conference center that was attached to the seminary. I walked into the room and it was a full day. It was presentation after presentation of a person, woman or man, giving a testimony about what they experienced, uh, you know, why they had chosen uh, having an abortion, um, then presentation from a doctor about abortion, from a psychologist about, about how it affects someone. So it was, it, was, it was a difficult day. But one woman's presentation, I, I still recall, uh, stood out to me, still stands out to me. She had, she had told us, now here she is presenting in a room full of seminarians, none of whom she'd met. She told us that not, she had not had one, but two abortions. Uh, her first two children. Both had been with her husband, who she was married to, and she had been devastated by the first experience, promised it would never happen again, then circumstances unfolded in such a way that led her back to that same clinic in Columbus just a few years later to again be traumatized. She said from her perspective, in those days, her life was basically over. She thought it was over the first time she went to the clinic, and she said it was definitely over when she went back the second time. Immobilized by her guilt, immobilized by her shame, anger and resentment towards her husband that he didn't stop her, her fear that God and her two babies hated her and would never forgive her. And she had not been a particularly faithful person during that period of her life, but one day she decided that she was going to go to church. If I remember correctly, she had been raised Catholic and had been away from the church, but she decided that she was going to go to church, and when she was at church, she heard that there was an, a, a retreat 
for women who had 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 an abortion. So this was the ministry that we were getting trained by. This ministry was offering a retreat for women like her. So she went and she she said she went in with zero expectations. Um, But she said it changed her life, totally changed her life. In fact, she said that one moment on the retreat changed her life, saved her life, was what she said. Not just changed, but saved. Saved her life and saved her family. And she shared what was that moment? She went to confession. And it was in that confession, even though she was the one that went into the confessional during the retreat, it was Jesus who came into her life in a profound way and saved her from everything that she had walked in carrying. And it was that confession, she said, that allowed her and motivated her to stand in front of a room of men she had never met because they were training to become priests. And she shared the worst moments of her life, her greatest sins, and she stood with courage preaching to us about God's mercy, and she told us, seminarians, that that was what we needed to remember. She said, preach that confession saves lives. And that story always stuck with me, especially that point, obviously. Confession, the sacrament of mercy left to us by Jesus Christ, bought at the price of his blood, saves lives. It doesn't just make us feel better. It's not just icing on the cake or something suggested in the life of faith. It saves lives brings the dead back to life. And this powerful message, this story came to mind as I was meditating on our scripture readings for today, the third Sunday of Lent, because I think, if you go back through, starts with the Ten Commandments, there's the psalm exalting the laws of God, the commandments, then there is Jews demand sign, Greeks demand wisdom, but what do I preach? Christ crucified for our sins, And then finally, the the account of Jesus in John's Gospel purifying the temple. Why do I say that all of this brings to mind the sacrament of confession? Well, if we look primarily at the Gospel, Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, when he enters the courtyard, if if you go back and look up images of what the Jewish temple was, constructed by Solomon, ornamented more by Herod the Great, It became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a magnificent structure, and it had different porticos and different um, courtyards, where as you got closer and closer to the Holy of Holies, where God was said to dwell, it was supposed to become more and more an experience of heaven on earth. But now imagine what Jesus encountered when he walked in. Remember, the center of Jewish worship was animal sacrifice. So rather than being this place of peace and prayer, it was like a livestock auction. Jesus walked in to the temple, the, not just the outer porticos where the animals were supposed to be purchased and where the money changers were supposed to be, but at every level of the courtyards, Jesus was walking through and he was seeing these money changers exchanging their wares, selling the animals, switching out different currencies. 
And in this, Jesus' zeal was aroused. Now, why? Because he saw his father's house, a sacred place, a place that had been set aside to be the abiding place of God's presence, filled and cluttered. The people that were in the temple to pray couldn't because of the noise and the chaos. Their attention was taken away from being able to look at and marvel at God and had to deal with all of these things of the world. Christ saw that these money changers, who had a legitimate role to play, but in their appropriate place, had invaded. And, in addition to being where they were supposed to, they were not supposed to be, they also brought the intricacies and the lies of their trade. These money changers often offered a fair exchange of money and goods. This is the exchange rate for this currency, for the Jewish coin, or the temple coin, and this is what it costs to buy this particular animal for this particular sacrifice. But they didn't deliver on what they promised. And they did this, this cheating and depriving people of an experience of God in the temple. They dared to do it in the very presence of God. Well, when God himself walked in, we hear a description of how he reacted. He was incensed that this was going on. And even though God, all he does is only love, we might think, oh my goodness, Jesus got angry. He hit people. All of it was perfect love. The zeal of love to correct what was disordered. He drove out the cheaters, the distractors. He drove out and addressed the chaos. He drove them out, and he drove out the things that they brought with them. He cleared the temple for prayer. And when they had left, St. John points out that the people who were watching this were amazed, it says. They watched and they were amazed. Where there had been merchants, now only stood Christ. Where there had been Chaos, now there was the calm. And where there had been a cluttered courtyard with an old building that really looked like a marketplace, now was Jesus preaching the message of the glory of his coming resurrection, the coming passion. In three days, I will tear down the temple and rebuild it. And Christ's cleansing of the temple, I believe, is offered to us today. We are right in the middle of Lent as a beautiful teaching on the sacrament of confession. Because when God created us, and all of us who have been baptized have been recreated, that's what the sacrament of baptism does, what did we become? St. Paul talks about this in one of his letters. Christians, children of God, yes, but what does Paul say? Temples. Interesting word. It is the same word for the temple in Jerusalem. That's what St. Paul says. You are temples of the divine. We are dignified and we are loved. We are, each one of us, a sacred dwelling place for Almighty God. So when God sees us, He sees His temple built by Him to be and to remain glorious. But during this time of conversion and repentance, which is what Lent is, those two things, repent and convert. The reality is that if we are honest, 
in big ways and little ways, we, like the temple of Jerusalem, get cluttered, are filled with distractions, are filled with things that darken the glory that has been entrusted to us by Almighty God, things that distract us from Him who should reign supreme in our hearts. Yes, sometimes that clutter becomes so great that we lose sight of the fact that we are temples at all. That God not just has a place, but has the primacy of place in all that we are, do, and choose. And what is the cause of this clutter, this distraction, and this darkness? One word. Sin. Sin. Sin is like the money changers and their wares. Promises a lot, a lot of comfort, a lot of pleasure. But sin always cheats because we are not made for sin. It costs more than the stated price and what we get in return is never what was promised. And when sin comes in, it takes hold. It sets up shop and keeps selling. It crowds that temple area that is supposed to be sacred so that it blocks the way to the sacred, justifies not going to God, distracts the eyes with passing diversions, and in doing all of that, enslaves the soul through habit and burdens and then shackles with sin and guilt. Another reason people avoid God. I think all of us know this feeling. Sin never lives up to its promise. Even the sins we like the most, right? It just never lives up to, our, to, to what is promised. And that's what should drive us to confession because it is there in the simplicity of the sacrament of confession. When Christ sees his children, the temples he has created, when again, his zeal is aroused. As the gospel says, he knows our nature as he knew the nature of the temple in Jerusalem. It was his temple. He knows us, his temples. He knows our weaknesses. He knows all of that better than we know ourselves. Brothers and sisters, you are not going to surprise God with your sins. Don't be so foolish or prideful to think he doesn't know already. But more than just focusing on what burdens us in our sin and our guilt and our shame, which is so often what we focus on, and we stop there, Christ sees the glory. He sees our beauty. He sees and knows his love for us and that we are made for so much more. And so in confession, Christ comes into our temple. He upturns the tables of guilt. He drives out the money changers of sin. He scatters the clutter and the distraction. His love and his mercy invade with a power to set us free, to restore order to chaos, to liberate from chains. And when you emerge from confession, when I emerge from confession, where there had been money changers as it was in Jerusalem, now stands only Christ. And what a beautiful sight. Where there had been noise and the chaos of guilt and shame and sin, there is the Prince of Peace with His love. 
And where there had been a structure shrouded in darkness and confused by all of these competing realities, there is only the most glorious of temples, which is a soul filled with God's mercy. Resurrected. And this is what happens to you and I when we come to God for his mercy. This is the sacrament of confession. This is the sacrament of confession. It's not about judgment. It's not about shame. It's not about damnation. Again, that's often what we think it is. That's often how we describe it it as. That's how we treat the sacrament of confession. If that's what it is about, do you think he would have died for that? Because he wanted to judge us? It's the sacrament of freedom. It's about forgiveness from a God who shed his blood to make us holy, to remove the obstacles to our friendship with him. It's about a freedom offered by God who created us to be free. And it's about a salvation given by a God who sees us trapped in our sins. And the reason why I mention this, maybe you say like, everyone goes to confession, Father. And I would point out, if you want to go to confession, now's the time. Six people in line, this never happens. So I'm just saying... Um, but the reason I mention this is go, go online and look up any of the recent Pew or Gallup polls about Catholics and the observance of various aspects of Catholic life. The most recent Pew study about Catholicism said that about 43% of Catholics go to confession on any regular basis, which means 57% of Catholics, the majority, don't go to confession. Only 2 to 7% of Catholics think that they go to confession and defined as regularly. So that means 93 to 98% of Catholics don't go to confession regularly. And I bring that up because if we are not forgiven, who are we fooling to think that when we go out into the world, we are going to be able to forgive? And we do far worse things to God than others do to us. A spiritual writer once observed, forgiven people live differently. That is so true. So maybe it's been a while since you've been to confession. Maybe you had a bad experience in the past at some point or the last time you went to confession. Maybe you feel that you don't need confession because you can just pray to God in private. And you, you know, he'll forgive your sins. Do pray to God in private. But that's not the main way God forgives. Maybe you're scared, like that woman who stood in front of the crowd of seminarians and publicly confessed her worst sins. Not because it was necessary for her salvation, so, but that we might remember and remind. One good confession can save a life, can save a family, can save a marriage, and through that, save a world. Your sins are not too big. It's not been too long. Believe me, in the span of God's eternity, in the face of his love, nothing is too big And no time is too long. And so, especially to people who may be carrying large sins, especially to people who may have been away from sin, uh, from confession for years or decades, please, please, please 
Know that God is waiting for you in confession. Know that he is waiting for you. He longs to heal you and to forgive you so that you may experience in a profound way his love. Give his mercy a chance. Take that risk. And I promise you, as surely as Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that as that woman said, and as I promised on that day I would, a good confession made this Lent will save your life. Praise be Jesus Christ.